Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I, my whole life, revered the press secretary in that podium. Do you think you would have been asked to go out there and lie? And were you ever asked to? Well, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Phil, which means you're on Fill in the Blanks again. Thank you for being here again. My guest today, you're going to really enjoy. I'm talking to Stephanie Grisham. Now, Stephanie spent years, a lot of people, not so long, but Stephanie spent years as a member of Donald Trump's innermost circle and as one of Melania Trump's closest friends. She worked in the White House as Melania's chief of staff as deputy press secretary and as White House press secretary, helping to shape some of the most important events in Trump's presidency. Now, few people, as I alluded to, have served the Trumps longer or were as close to the family. So what's that mean? Well, it means she has a unique personal perspective on Trump's undeniably chaotic presidency, which she has written into a behind-the-scenes memoir called I'll Take Your Questions Now. She can explain that particular title as we get started. She says, look, this is free from spin, denial, any fake news or twisted notions of loyalty that define the Trump brand. So she's going to be candid with us and give some insight to this that I really think you hear from few others. So I'll just start by saying hello. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad to do this because it's been an interesting presidency. You were involved in as close to this probably as anyone, certainly as long as anyone. I know Donald Trump. I don't know him as well as you do because you've been in his inner circle for a long time. Why did you decide to write this book and why did you decide to write it when you did? Couple things. It's funny when you said that, like I don't you said I don't you don't know him as well as I do. I don't think I know him as well as I thought I did or hoped I did. Um the book I wrote actually I resigned on January sixth. I was the first one to resign uh when the in- insurrection was happening. And I, I I left. I had no I didn't plan to write a book. In fact, I'd already always told Melania Trump that people who wrote books were disgusting. I hated it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then I got a lot of questions about a lot of things. And a lot of things happened to me personally at the end. And I just wanted to put it down. I wanted to put it down for myself, for my kids, for my grandkids and anyone who would be interested, which I didn't have any notions that people would be interested or believe you know, people are going to believe what they want to. I've learned that in the last five years, but I wrote it for myself. A lot of things happened at the end that really crushed me. And, you know, still to this day, I struggle with loyalty to them. I do because I was with them for a very long time. Um, 
which is why I'm excited to talk to you, because I think you'll have a lot of insights into just kind of the psyche of things. I'm glad that you're bringing that up right at the top, because I know people are often conflicted about this. You knew them. You spent time with them, particularly Melania. Would you say you guys were friends? I thought we were friends. I don't think that I was correct, but I thought we were friends. I I cared for her deeply. I was very protective of her. I grew to admire her. I admired her strength and her viewpoints on her husband personally and professionally as president. I thought we were friends, but I'm not sure that she felt the same way, even though I, I thought she did. I do. Do you feel betrayed by her? Um, At the end. You know, it's funny because there was a story that was done saying by an anonymous source that, you know, she helped me personally and professionally. And I read that and I was like, she did. I agree with that. But I also helped her professionally and personally. And at the end, a lot of things happened that I shared with her. Um, I've got emails about it, texts about it. And she didn't help me. And these weren't just like, hey, people are being mean to me. These were pretty big things. So at the end, I did feel very betrayed by her, yes. What exactly was it that she did that caused you, because you said you felt close to them, you felt loyal to them, you still have a tug-of-war about that, even with what happened, but you don't feel that you shouldn't have done this or you wouldn't have done it. What happened that gave you permission, gave you license personally, with your own moral compass, Mm -hmm. to write this book? A couple things. So number one, I want to say I I left a lot out in the book. So in terms of being loyal, I still left a lot out, and both of them know that. Um, For me, at the end, I went to her specifically over and over about Mark Meadows and some of his staff and some of the things they were trying to do to me, say about me, spread about me, especially leaks, which was just asinine because in six years I'd never leaked about them. Um, uh, there was a, I'm, I'm just going to say it. There was a whole uh, rumor spread that I was trashed on election night. I was drunk. I did all these bad things, you know, and she was with me and she herself said, I don't know what they're talking about, but she didn't go, she didn't go any further. And after um, that amount of time knowing me that she the way she did it it just it was very hard for me that um trump got to choose his chief of staff over a person who had been around since the beginning uh and then you know i i had some personal issues i have to be careful talking about this because i'm being sued right now for defamation but i had a personal relationship and i shared with the president and the first lady that i had been abused and they didn't do anything about it And that was really hard for me because at that time, I wrongfully, obviously, felt like I was a daughter or at the very least close with them. And they didn't do anything. And that really, that was tough for me. You're being sued for defamation by who? Uh, By a gentleman named Max Miller who worked at the White House. Is that who you alleged had transgressed against you? Well, I mean, honestly, I never have said his name. I have never written about it. I've never said his name. When I I did write an op-ed in the WAPO, uh, my point was to say that somebody had hurt me and that they didn't do anything about it. But he is now suing me for defamation. That's public. So I think it's okay to say it. Um, And then 
the president of the United States has backed him uh, for a, a role in Congress. So when you went to the two of them, you wanted them to step in and consequate that behavior in some way to do something about it. I wanted them to make me feel safe. And, right. you know, I think that by that point I had shown that I was an honest, true player with them. And I wanted them to just to make me feel safe. And they didn't. When you told them about it, what did they do? What did they say? She was wonderful at the moment. She said, did you go to the police? I said, I didn't because he's about to run for reelection and we have had enough domestic violence issues here. So I'm trying to stay quiet. Probably stupid on my part, but, uh, you know, that was what I felt at the time. So at the moment, she was really wonderful. He said, I'm very surprised. He's broken up over this. I'm very surprised and left it at that. And that, that was kind of the end of it. You know, I just and then and then from there, a lot of a lot of things went around about me that I was, you know, mentally unstable. I'm an alcoholic. I have a drug abuse problem, et cetera, et cetera. It's the normal Trump world. You smear people when, you know, you're not happy with them. Um, and for me, I wrongfully felt like they were, again, my friends or surrogate parents. And I thought that they would look out for me and they did not. Right. They were saying things about that you were an alcoholic, drug addict, et cetera. Was any of that true at any time in your life? No, I have had a DUI, which I've explained in my book ad nauseum, but I grew up um, with an alcoholic parent. And so actually alcoholism and drug abuse, which also runs in my family, uh, not directly, but that's a very sensitive issue to me and very close to my heart. And when I worked for Mrs. Trump, opioid abuse was one of her big uh, issues. And I right. was really invested in that because my family has seen uh, the detriment of it. For me personally, absolutely not. No, no, because I, I refuse to go down that path. People who were close to me knew that. They knew about the DUI and they chose to use that against me. Yeah. Well, the reason I asked you about that was so you can clear it up 100% right here. Yeah. That yep. What they were saying at the time that you were a drug addict, alcoholic, et cetera, None of that was true at the time or earlier. No, and I, I want to say this too, and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. And number one, um, that is not true, no. Number two, when I was in the White House, I definitely struggled with anxiety, and I had a prescription for Xanax, and I took it very responsibly, and it was monitored by a doctor. And um, people very close to me, I trusted with that because I didn't feel I was doing anything wrong. I think used that like she was addicted. I wasn't. I was using it for anxiety. Hey, I still have anxiety and I still use it sometimes. And I'll be very honest about that. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in that regard. When it comes to alcohol, again, it's, it runs in my family. And so on election night was the big when they... They pushed that. Um, did I have a couple glasses of wine? Yes. We were at the election party where I had not voted for my boss. I was stressed out. People were already pushing all kinds of things about me, but I was not drunk. I did my job. And um, they tried to push pictures of me on the Daily Mail of me in my office later laying on the floor with my feet up. But that's because any woman who knows about wearing high heels for 12 hours will know your feet hurt. Um, so that was really hard for me, and I, but, but also I'm kind of grateful for the lesson because now I, I look at people differently, you know? I do, I look at people differently and 
A photo doesn't mean you were trashed. A photo, I don't know. It was cruel. When they didn't respond to that, that's one of the things that made you feel like this was a one-sided relationship. Well, okay, so uh, that night, election night, to talk about Mrs. Trump, she knew I was not drunk. I was with her most of the night. She told me over and over, you weren't drunk, you were with me, you were in my bedroom. Um, you know, I, I honestly, that part didn't kill me as much because it didn't become public until after I decided to resign, which was expected. Again, I think the the issue I had was Mark Meadows, he started accusing me of leaking stories and the president was buying into it. And then um, <clears throat> again, when I spoke to the president and the first lady about something that happened to me personally, because they knew all about my personal relationship. They'd watched us start to date. Um, when I told them what happened and nothing came of it, that was, that was really hard for me. And I felt like, I don't know, I felt like for the first time, I felt like a person who tries to ask for help and people don't believe you or they don't care enough. And that was really hard. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, you joined Trump's presidential campaign as a press aide in 2015, right? Correct. And then you became part of the transition team. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yes. What do you mean, kind of? Well, it's funny. It's so funny because I was named as part of the transition team, but I actually never had a formal transition role, and I was still on the payroll of the campaign. Um, but either way, this is right to most people— I was there from his being elected until he took office. So, yes, I was there. Right. Then in 2017, you did arrive in Washington and you served as a deputy to Sean Spicer, right? Yes. How did that go? You know, it's fine. I was um, I was grateful. My my lifelong dream had been to be White House press secretary. And at that time, which I do talk about in the book, a lot of RNC people were coming in and a lot of us Trump people were very wary of them. Um, and so for an RNC person to offer me one of the three deputy press sec jobs was it was an honor. And so I was happy to take it. Once I got in there, they kept me in the same role that I had as the campaign, which was just stay with the press and be able to push him out of the room when he wanted. Um, so I didn't get to actually do deputy press secretary roles. At that point, I didn't mind. President Trump loved me. Sean was happy with me. Um, I had a title I liked, and I was just hoping I would grow from there. It was a couple of months, and you started 
serving as communications director and serving Melania directly, correct? Yes. Were you happy about that? I was, um, because I did feel at the time that I wasn't being utilized for my communications expertise. I'm giving me that own title. Other people could argue it. Uh, yeah, I wasn't doing interviews. I wasn't interacting with the press other than to kick them out of a room. And so when Melania Trump recognized that I could have a talent there and she called me in to meet me, which I was not expecting, yeah, I was really excited. And after my first meeting with her, I really, she was so down to earth. She was so kind. She kept asking me if I wanted water, coffee, is the temperature in the room okay? She, like her husband, they're the ultimate hosts. Um, and when she started to talk to me about her thoughts for children, I really, I got very excited about that. So I was, I was, I was happy about that. And I had not met her before. I had seen her a couple of times. And she was just this, oh my gosh, beautiful woman, which she also was in my very surprise interview, but she was so down to earth and kind. So I was really looking forward to moving somewhere that I thought maybe I could grow and be appreciated. So you worked with her pretty closely beginning then, right? Yeah. I mean, as with every Trump, it takes a little time to get close to them. But I, I mean, of course, I was her comms person, so we spoke every day right from the start. And um, I became closer and closer to her, obviously, with every day that passed. Yeah. Now, I guess it was, what, a year into that, that you got into the first, uh, maybe it was the first, but it was certainly high profile that you you got into having to do damage control on her Be Best program. Yeah. Because they said that a lot of it had been plagiarized from the Obama program. Was that the first major crisis you had to deal with with her? Or was there something before that? Um, well, so I'm going to apologize in advance because to me, I know it wasn't long ago, but everything seems like it was 150 years ago. In Trump world, so much happens that you... Uh, I think that was actually our first as an office crisis. I do. And it was a misunderstanding. And uh, the people that we were using their pamphlets for, which was a government entity, had said, just use these, go ahead. Uh, we had no idea that the Obama administration had used them. So perhaps that was our office's fault on not looking at that. But the message was still good. And we never purported that we wrote the pamphlets that we were pushing out. Um, we had just hired a policy person. That was tough. And, and I hated that for her because that was not her fault. And here we go, because she had already been accused of plagiarism, as you know, with the first, uh, right, from the speech. Right. right. Uh -huh. And, and that wasn't her. And, um, that was our office truly just trying to put some good information out. But I think, I think you're right that that was our first professional scandal. I've had so many personal ones with her that it's hard to kind of keep track. But yeah. How did she handle that? Does she take those things personal? Yeah. Yeah. I think rightfully so. I mean, she was upset here. Her staff comes to her and says, look at this booklet. We're going to pass this out. It's got your message. This will be great. And as you know, as a principal, she trusted her staff, which I think that's a good thing. And so she was very upset and rightfully so. And we were all upset. Like, how did this happen? And, you know, we got permission. I forget what government entity gave it to us. I almost 
I don't, I'm not going to speculate, but, and they even came out and said, yeah, we gave this to them. They didn't write it. They never said they wrote it. But at that point, you know, it left the building. She was upset and she was rightfully upset. Yeah. So just a bad spin on her. Everything was a bad spin on her. I remember when, um, when we first took office, everyone was just confident we were going to rip out the garden, the White House garden. And I kept saying to people, like, what do you think she's going to do? Put in a golden statue? Like, stop. She's keeping the vegetable garden. And so finally, we were like, let's do an event to show that we're going to keep this garden and that what Michelle Obama started was a good thing. So we invited some children from the Boys and Girls Club. They came and um, we did a great event. She helped some children garden. And all the stories that came out the next day were that her shoes were too white and clean and that her shirt was like a $4,000 shirt. And at that point, you know, look, there's there's no love lost between us now, but that was patently unfair. She kept the garden. She invited children. She promoted the garden. And all it care, they, people cared about was her white shoes and her really expensive flannel shirt. That's ridiculous. It's It's ridiculous. Yeah, you had to feel at that point like we can't win. To this day, I feel that way. I mean, I was so angry that yeah. day. Yeah, you can't win. And I don't know that Melania Trump could win. You know, I don't. She had a real uphill climb. Eventually, I guess it was middle of 19, you did become the press secretary. Yes. How did she feel about that? Because you guys had worked together closely, and okay, now you're moving over to that position. Was she supportive? Oh, yes. In fact, um, I mean, I've got text that, that would prove this, but yes, she and I talked about it, and I told her, I will stay with you. I will stay with you if you think that's what's best. Um, she had always been very good to me. And, you know, she knew my dream had always to be White House press secretary. I think where I messed up was my dream was not to be the Trump White House press secretary. I know that now. But she and I agreed that I could take the job, but still work for her. And we thought that that would actually show a nice synergy between the East and West Wings, which so far everybody had thought we were so against each other. And so I took the job with the agreement with the president that Mrs. Trump and I would still work together. I would still be her spokesperson and her comms director. And that is the only reason I took the job. Yeah. Did it work out? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look, I took the job thinking that I would be different because I would have Melania Trump on my side and that when some kind of crazy things come up, I'd be able to call her and then she could call him and, and put a stop to it, which she did. I'll give her credit. She did. Um, no, it didn't work out. You know, at the end of the day, he didn't want me to take the podium. At that point, he felt he was his own best spokesperson. Fine by me. I didn't know that I wanted to take the podium in the Trump White House. Um, but no, it didn't work out. No. Why did you not want to take the podium? Um, I did not want to be put in the position to be dishonest to the American public. And I want to be clear that that's not even a, that's not an indictment on Sarah or Sean. But at that point we had COVID going. Um, The president was saying things at the podium that weren't helpful. We had Fauci and Burke saying certain things. We had the first impeachment going on. 
And uh, this is going to sound, I, I hate saying this because it sounds cheesy, but I, I, my whole life, revered the press secretary and that podium. And so the thought of going out there and ever lying to the American people and getting caught, that would have meant um, a lot to me. Do you think you would have been asked to go out there and lie? And were you ever asked to? Well, two th- before I took the job, it was agreed I wouldn't take the podium. He had already stopped it. He had already stopped Sarah from taking the podium six months prior to me. So she had stopped. We agreed I would not take the podium. Now, I will say, which I write about in my book, he asked me to go out at one point and read the um, transcripts between himself and Zelensky. And he wanted me to, like, reenact it on the podium with two different voices, which, number one, if you know me, I can't do an accent for my life. So that would have been a disaster in and of itself. But I, no, I mean, I'm not going to go out there and reenact a conversation. That was the only time he asked me to take the podium. So he wanted you to role play the two parts. Yeah. I would have been on SNL for sure. So that wasn't a good idea. No, (laughs) it was a terrible idea for anybody. I don't care who it was. I don't think you ever held a briefing, correct? Mm -mm. But again, that was our agreement when I started. You have to remember, like, I get a lot of grief because people say I wasted taxpayers' money because I never held a briefing. A couple things there. The press secretary doesn't just hold briefings. She oversees a huge staff, or she or he, of people. So... That's not fair. But when I took the job as press secretary under Trump, I took the press secretary job, the director of communications job, and I was Mrs. Trump's press secretary. So I had three full time jobs at once. And so part of that agreement was that briefings would not be an issue for me because he felt I talked to him two, three times a day. Stephanie, you don't need to do it. I, I do better. Yeah. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Now, you didn't hold briefings, but you actually got into a physical scuffle with North Korean aides just outside a room where Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un were set to meet in front of the press during a June trip. And you physically got into a fracas, right? Oh, yeah. That was that was something. You know how there's those... Uh... When you go, I don't even know, if you go into a party and they're like, tell us three things, two are true, one's nothing. I feel like for the rest of my life, I can be like, I fought with North Korean guards. And that could be my, no way that's true. I did. Um, 
he KJU didn't want anybody in there. Donald Trump, of course, did. And yeah, I, I really got into it with with some guards. There was video. I think at first people didn't believe that it happened. And then there was video getting them all in. And I had bruises. Um, you know, what was interesting about that. The whole flight home. I was um, I was devastated and worried about those guards. I wondered if those guards got killed because an American and no less a female pushed them around and it made news that, you know, we won. That was hard for me at the end. Yeah. Do you know whatever happened? No, we, we, we think we know, but that was tough for me. That was really tough for me at the time I was doing it. It was instinct. Um, but that was, that was tough for me. I still wrestle with that. Well, let's hope they're okay. I agree. I agree. You resigned January 6, 21. Why? Because I had, I, I was very separate from the West Wing at that point because Mark Meadows and I were not in a good place. Um, but I had this feeling, and as I've said to people before many times, in the Trump White House, most things where people would be like, oh, this is bad, this is bad, you grow, you really grew immune to that. So nothing ever surprised me. But the day before, the day leading up, I just, I had a bad feeling. And it was nothing that anyone told me. It was just a feeling, I think, after being around them so much and different behaviors. And um, the next day it started, et cetera, et cetera. I watched it and things started to happen. And I sent Mrs. Trump a text and I said, hey, you know, should you send a, a tweet out that says, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, everybody has the right to protest peacefully, but there's there's no room for violence here. You know, please be peaceful or go home. Again, I'm paraphrasing, um, but it wasn't meant to be political at all. It was just like, please, let's not become violent. And she wrote back the word no. And um, Mrs. Trump had always with me been very vocal privately especially but sometimes publicly about things that were going on and she never ever had a problem speaking out or doing something you know not against her husband but against maybe some of his policies or things that were going on let's say the border going down to visit the children and so when she just wrote back no something in me just kind of turned off and there had been a couple of things in the week or two previous that had been in my head, things she'd been saying like, well, we don't know what's going on. Maybe we didn't lose. And that wasn't like her. And so I didn't know who had been in the residence or who had been talking to her, <clears throat> but she had always, always condemned violence. Like she was the first in our whole administration or group to condemn Charlottesville. And so for her to just say no and not give me any explanation, that was very odd to me because she usually at least explained it. Um, and I write this in my book. She at that time, she was upstairs taking pictures of a new carpet that she had helped design and put in the White House. And uh, watching what was happening on the TV, knowing what she was doing and knowing she wouldn't put out even the most benign tweet, just calling for peace. I had already been trying to resign for a few months. I've got the emails to prove that. She'd always talked me out of it. And that's just what was like the last straw. And 
which shouldn't have been the last straw, but that's just that. <clears throat> and so I would say five, 10 minutes later, I sent her an email and I resigned. Well, you say in the book, you sent the text, do you want to tweet that peaceful protest are the right of every American, but there is no place for lawlessness and violence? And you got a one word response, no. At that point, you said, okay, that's it. I'm out. Yeah, uh, because again, she, even when I would suggest things and she would tell me no, she always told me why. I mean, we always had a good banter, a good discussion, and, and I would be able to push back. But I also knew her well enough to know that if I got a no, that was no. And that just broke me because I know her, or I knew her, or I thought I knew her. And I, I, I thought, how can you be watching what's happening right now and not want to speak out? You're not speaking out against your husband. You're literally speaking for peace. Um, and I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just, and again, I had been trying to resign for at least three, four months uh, prior to that. So, yeah. Did she talk to you about all of the Stormy Daniels allegations of her husband's infidelity and that sort of thing? What did she say about that and how did she handle it? So, yes, I had to be the person who called her to tell her that the first story was going to break about uh, Stormy Daniels and payments and whatnot. And that was really difficult because at the time, I really did think of her as a friend. And um, as a woman who's been cheated on before anyway, I was feeling that, you know, and I thought, my gosh, she's not only going to feel that, but it's going to be so public. And the details are going to be so public. And so I was very protective of her. <clears throat> Looking back, she didn't need probably or want my protection, but I felt protective of her. And so I called her and told her um, that first phone call, she was stoic. She was calm. I was in awe. I, I admired it. Over the, the next few months, as the stories came out, you know, I got to see glimpses of her. She was clearly not happy, rightfully so. Uh, she did little things quietly to try to show her um, unhappiness. But uh, as I wrote my book, I was in awe of the woman. She was stronger than I ever would have been, honestly. What did she do quietly to show her unhappiness? She, uh, we had a state of the union coming up and she sent me a text saying she would like one of our, uh, military office aides to walk her through the Capitol because the floors were slippery. And at that point I had seen this woman literally walk up hills in, uh, where were we? Where were we? Brussels in heels, dirt hills where she actually broke the tip off her heel the woman can walk anywhere in heels. She doesn't need anybody walking her. So I knew that that was a little slight to him. She not only went separately to the State of the Union, she had a handsome young man walking her along. There was that. Um, she didn't have me respond for the longest time, the longest time in saying she supported her husband or, or whatnot. Um, yeah, we had a lot of just conversations and she wasn't happy about it, but I, she kept telling me, Stephanie, that's his problem. That's his problem. He can deal with it. Why do I have to deal with it? And I was like, what? I, I wish I had that. 
I don't know, that quiet patience or I don't know what it was. I admired it. Did she feel that way the whole time or did she ever finally say enough's enough and too much is too much? She, of course, talked to me about how, you know, trashy this woman was or, you know, Michael Avenatti was obviously really capitalizing off of it. So she would get mad in those regards. But no, her composure was always like, she never stopped saying to me, this is his problem. It's not my problem. And I always marveled at that. And I still do today, you know, to be able to say like, it's not me as a woman, because I, I, as you probably know, most women are like, what I do wrong, what's wrong with me? And women bend, bend over backwards to try to change themselves or win their men back or whatever. She was like, this is him. I'm not going to deal with it. This is him. Great. He can deal with it. And I always respected that. I still do. I still do. In talking about him, President Trump himself, you said his temper was terrifying and it could be directed at anyone, whether he or she deserved it or not. Yeah. Say more about that. What do you mean? Okay. Um, I grew up with a stepfather who had a really horrible temper and he was very abusive in many, many ways to me, which I won't go into, but as I've had time to reflect after my book, especially, I think for me personally, that is where that statement came from. This man, and I do write about this in the book, it was like a cycle of abuse, right? Like you could walk in and he would literally be like, Stephanie, Stephanie, my beautiful Stephanie, you did amazing on TV today. And you would be, he would be so happy with you and you would feel so good and, and we would joke around. And then I remember when I, <clears throat> I think I was the first person maybe in the country to have perhaps gotten COVID because it was with <clears throat> Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president who first came out with it, his press secretary. And I had just been with him at Mar-a-Lago. So I was, I was quarantined for like three weeks and I was really sick. And at one point, the president called me and I answered and talked to him, of course. And I, he was like, oh, honey, you sound like shit. You need to stay home. Take care of yourself. Feel better. You sound awful. Da, 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 da. Fast forward two weeks and I, I came back, but I was still trying to kind of keep my distance because he's such a germaphobe, but I did get some into the Oval. So I walked into the Oval he was in his dining room and I walked to the door and he was like, stop, stop, stop. And he wouldn't let me come in any further. So I stood in the doorway and we talked about whatever we talked about. And uh, one of the White House lawyers gave him an answer he didn't like. And it just erupted. I mean, he was in a fine mood and he didn't get an answer he liked. And so he erupted, as I said. And then he, he turned to me and he, can I curse on your show or no? Sure. Okay. Say what was said. Okay. He turned to me and he goes, and you, where the fuck have you been? You're my only PR person who's nowhere to be found. I didn't know who to call. I didn't know what to do. Where the fuck have you been? Which, number one, he had my phone number. Also, the White House switchboard did. So that's, and he called me and he knew where I had been. And also he wouldn't let me in the room. So he knew I was just potentially getting over COVID. Um, and that was scary. His temper could be really, really scary. And 
I, I always hesitate saying that because I feel like I sound weak or like a weak woman or I don't know. But it wasn't a strong man talking to you. It was temper tantrums and it was scary. And it did make you or me as someone who had been abused in my past, past want to say yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I wondered now, as I've had time to think and I've gone through a lot of therapy, you know, did he choose people like that? Knowing that if he just showed that temper, everybody would say yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Because, you know, in a lot of the meetings I saw, no one pushed back. No one pushed back. Well, and you said he didn't like staff, lawyers, whatever, telling him that things he wanted to do were unethical or illegal. He didn't like hearing that. No. Most of the time, we all found workarounds where it was like, we'll look into that, we'll look into that, and hope that he would forget. And he did often forget. But, you know, there were times that he would want you to go. I can't tell you how many times as press secretary, he said to me, go, kick them all out, get them all off the property, do it, do it now, do it now. And I would walk out of there and say, yes, sir, yes, sir, and then pray he would forget about it. And then I would look for you know, rightful reasons that I couldn't push them off the property. I feel silly to this day saying that it was a very abusive type of a relationship, but it's all I know to compare it to. Um, What I know is I saw people who were, you know, the head of the military and the DOJ and pretty much every agency, all of his cabinet members. I never once saw anybody say like, no, sir, that's not going to happen. No. Everybody found a way to kind of work around him, which is why I agreed to do this with you, because I think that you, of all people, I don't know, can think that through. Just the psychology behind it. I don't know. You know, it was interesting, all of the things that ramped up to his election during the campaign at different stages. But you say once he was elected, that he still was... I'll read a quote, taking an unusual interest in a young, highly attractive press wrangler, asking where the woman was, whether she would be traveling with him on foreign trips, asking you to bring the aide to his office cabin on Air Force One, Mm -hmm. and quote, put her on TV, keep her happy, promote her, let's bring her up here and look at her ass, end of quote. Uh, Oblivious to whether that was inappropriate or not? Or did he just not care? He didn't care. He, I mean, he had to know that was inappropriate. Just as a married man, let alone in a professional setting, he, he knew that was inappropriate. He knew. What would you say to him when he said those kind of things to you? So, so um, let's just look at her ass. He did not say that to me. He said that to one of my deputies. And my deputy told me. Um, whenever he said, bring her up here, I would bring her up, but I would sit with her. I never, ever left her alone with him. Not once. Uh, when he would say, should she be on TV? Put her on TV. I always said, look, perhaps in the future, but right now she's a little green. You know, she's not ready for that yet. And he would say, put her on. And that was one of those instances where I knew I could probably walk away and he would forget about it. Um, I did try to, when I was press secretary, I tried to keep her off trips off of especially long trips, like a foreign trip. I was successful sometimes and sometimes I wasn't. I 
I tried to keep her away from his him as much as I could. I got a lot of um, grief when I wrote that in the book because people were like, you should have done more to protect her. I don't know what I could. I, I have thought about it over and over. He was the president of the United States. I couldn't go to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. He wouldn't have done anything. Tons of people in the White House knew about it. There is not a human resources office to go and say like, hey, the president of the United States is being, you know, um, like who would have gone to talk? The chief of staff would have. Um, Mark Meadows knew fully well about it. I did think about talking to Melania about it, but then I'm like, that's not perfect. I don't know. That was tough. Um, She never came to me and said she was uncomfortable with it. She never came to me and said she felt uncomfortable with any situation. I did everything I could to never let her be alone with him. That was a really, really tough one. Yeah. Did you ever say anything to her about what he was saying about her? Well, I never told her about, like, let's look at her ass because I wasn't in the room, whatever. I did have a talk with her. I sat her down one time and I said, listen, you know, you're being requested a lot. If you ever feel uncomfortable, please let me know. I want to make sure that you're always with someone. So I definitely had a talk with her about it. And she at the time was like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, But I, I definitely had a talk with her to tell her, if you ever feel uncomfortable, please talk to me. Yeah. Was he ever inappropriate with you? He, I mean, inappropriate. Yeah, sure. Yes. Um, he, But not in that same way. He enjoyed talking to me about if I've had a boob job or any plastic surgery I've done. He one time talked to me about um, his lawsuit uh, with E. Jean Carroll. And we were talking about how her allegation was that they were in a um, dressing room. And I said something like, I cannot imagine, you know, if someone in a dressing room ever tried to attack me. And he was like, oh, you'd kick their ass. So he would talk to me definitely in a very personal way. He he definitely talked to my ex-boyfriend. I guess he asked if I was good in bed. Um, mostly with me, he would talk about any like cosmetic work I had done type of a thing. He never, ever propositioned me. I'm too old for him. Yeah. <laughs> you think that worked to your advantage? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And he, and he knew how close I was with his wife. So. Yeah, I'm sure that helped too. Yeah, yes. Well, you said obviously he was aware that these things were inappropriate, but his bad judgment, you said, wasn't restricted to just personal relationships or things that cross these kind of barriers. You talked about the fact that you heard him say things with dictators that were really troubling, that he seemed to have a fascination with these dictators that had unchecked power and somehow or another, he really had an admiration for these people. I mean, it seemed to me that way. Yeah. He definitely got most excited if we were with, um, you know, President Xi from China, obviously KJU. I mean, he himself talked about their love letters or whatever, Uh, you know, and I, I was able to sit in with him and, hear how he spoke to Putin um, and the other two I just mentioned. And, you know, I do talk about in the book as well. We were one time in a bilat with uh, Erdogan from Turkey, and he turned to me randomly, and he was like, Stephanie, Stephanie, who do you think the biggest killer is, this guy or President Xi? 
Now, what? I think, honestly, this was like my second week on the job as press secretary. And it's like, what What do you, I don't know. Am I going to ha- send up some foreign relations craziness if I say President Xi's tougher than Erdogan? It was so crazy. And so at the time, I just said, well, sure, he looks pretty tough. I don't know. And afterwards, he pulled me aside and he said, it's she. You don't even know the things he's done. It's she. And so, yeah, from from everything I saw behind the scenes, he seemed to kind of marvel at their power. And it was interesting to me because I have to tell you, in the beginning, everybody at the White House would joke with me, too. I always was excited for the bilats with with these kinds of these dictators and stuff. But I think for me, it was just more of a normal person curiosity. But he seemed to really revel in it and almost want to one up them on toughness. And this is all just me and my thoughts here. But, you know, I write about in the book when he had a bilat with Putin and the translator was a very attractive woman. And one of the NSC people pointed out to me. They swapped her out, Stephanie. They swapped this translator out at the end or quickly because of you and because of Ivanka Trump and because they knew that it would. I'm pointing to these imaginary people, by the way, but um, they knew that it would distract Trump. And it did. He talked to this translator a ton. And in all the bilats I sat in, I never saw him do that ever, ever, ever again. And she was a very beautiful, dark haired woman. And he definitely paid attention to her. So it was interesting to watch those things, for sure. Do you believe that he is going to run again? And how would you feel if he gets elected again? Everyone's calling me crazy, but I still don't think he's going to run again. I think that he is raising money, and I think he is reveling in being the head of the Republican Party. I think that he is trying to install people in every down ballot race up through Congress and the Senate. And I think that and I know that if he's successful, he doesn't have to be president. He'll have all these people who are going to do what he says. I don't think his ego can take losing again. I do not believe Melania Trump wants to do it again. Um, I know in her latest interview, she said, never say never. And I found that telling because normally she always says, I support him in everything he wants to do. I know her very well. I know the things she says. She didn't say that this time. She said, never say never. I don't believe he'll run again. I could be wrong, but I I just don't think his ego can take losing. And I do believe that he is placing people in so many spots that he knows he can continue to be powerful. So you think he would not run for fear of losing? Yeah, correct. And in the meantime, look, he's raising tons of money. He is still the leader of the Republican Party. Everybody is looking to him, kissing his ass, going to Mar-a-Lago. And the people who are getting in will completely do what he says, even if he's not the next president. And at first, I got to tell you, the whole notion of like putting him in as Speaker of the House, at first I heard that and I was like, that is nuts. I'm not even going to entertain it. I'm starting to weirdly entertain it based on the people that, you know, he's backing in Congress and who could win. Some of the things that you've said, and you've made it clear that these are your opinions. Yes. 
but because of his admiration of some of these dictators, I know you said on The View that he admires them and that you think he might want to be able to just kill whoever spoke out against him. If he got in again and didn't have to worry about getting reelected, so wasn't worried about the future, not that he would start killing people, but he might be a little less accountable for what he did policy-wise and going forward. Do you think that worries the RNC? Uh, No. Sadly, no. I think that the RNC is so worried about raising money that they're not thinking that through, which is disappointing. I do believe that if he ran and won for president again, that we could have, you know, our first kind of dictator on our hands because, again, he will have installed people And we're talking state level offices. He's endorsing secretaries of state that you have to remember will overturn elections. Like who the things that were stopped when when he lost. There are people I can point to Arizona right now. There's somebody running for secretary of state, Mark Fincham, and running for governor, Carrie Lake. They have both said openly that they will decertify the election. It was stolen. So, you know, even if he doesn't win, you know what? Now that I'm talking this through with you, I think that he's probably waiting to see who gets put in. And if he were to become president again and he's got all these extremists in office, what's to stop him? And think about what could happen. There will be no guardrails and there it will be revenge. It will be all revenge. I just don't think that it will be about our country. It'll be about exacting revenge. And as you know, you can... A president is two terms. So he's not going to have to worry about reelection. I remember specifically when I worked at the White House, he would have some ideas and people would say to him, sir, that's a second term idea, meaning second term won't matter. We're not running for reelection. I think it will be chaos. I do. Well, if he is so driven by revenge and so unchecked in going after people, do you worry? about his reaction, their reaction to you writing this book? Oh, of course. Yes. I mean, I've already had, they've been digging into my life. They've, um, they've had PIs following my biological father. They have been shopping crazy stories about me. I mean, they've already started to try to hurt me. Very worried. I mean, I don't even want to say it, but I feel like I'll be one of those people who's like, I'm headed to Canada, but not because I don't love my country, but because I will be scared. Yeah. He's not a forgiving man. Whether he gets reelected or not, at this point, have you talked to either him or Melania since the book came out? No, I have not. I, um, I talked to Melania the night that I had resigned and I said, hey, it's going to get out that I resigned. You know, I plan to put something out saying I really enjoyed doing the work that I did for you. And she never responded. And we have never spoken since. And and uh, the president and I never spoke. We spoke. It's funny. After her RNC speech, um, we were in the cross hall in the White House and he was saying how great the speech was. And he said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to take you back talking to me, like, I'm going to take you back to the West Wing. And I'm like, that's never going to happen ever. And he gave me a hug, which was the first hug I'd ever gotten from him ever, first and only hug in six years. And that's the last time I spoke with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I know that they both know 
um, the things I'm saying have been true. You know, I give them credit where credit's due. I know that they are both very aware that um, the personal things that happened to me are true. I told them, I confided in them. And, you know, I guess we're at a stalemate. If they continue to harass you, if they are following your family, if they're doing these things, what do you think will come of that? Do you think this will blow over and you'll go on with your life? Or do you think there'll be something that comes of it? No, I mean, I'm, I'm going on with my life now. Um, they've already tried to shop stories about me and I've been able to like show what the actual facts are. Uh, every bad thing about me in the world is out there. So, you know, uh, unless they do anything that endangers my children, it's fine. I I've got nothing to hide. Um, so it is what it is. Yeah. So what's next on the horizon for you? I don't know. Uh, I I'm right now. My goal is to talk to people for the midterms and to just kind of keep talking about my story. If I'm being really honest, my dream right now, and I'm looking into it is opening um, an animal sanctuary because animals are amazing and they don't turn on you. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding, but you know, I've been living in Kansas. I've been spending time with my kids and I've been helping my baby sister um, who's been going to nursing school and my nephews and I'm raising chickens now, which is crazy. Never done that before. I just adopted a, a special needs bulldog that's paralyzed. And I really am thinking, I just want to kind of open some kind of a animal rescue. Honestly, I just, I don't need to stay in this. It's very toxic. Now I do believe the midterms in 24 are vital. And so if people want to hear from me, I am ready and willing to be there, but I'm also not pushing it because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, personal risk for me, but mostly for my family. Yeah. So if you never got back into the political arena again, you'd be just fine. Just fine. Just fine. Yes. A hundred percent. Okay with you. Yes. I've been there. I've done it. It was great. I learned a lot. Um, but I, you know, I'm ready to you know, just help people and, and animals, honestly. Well, I know you're half joking, but you bring up a good point. Animals do seem to have an unbelievable loyalty. So it's true. <laughs> listen, you've shared some incredible insights and, you know, these midterms are going to be important. I think the presidential election, it seems like it's tomorrow. I know it seems a long way off when you look at a calendar, mm. but so no, much tomorrow. is happening right now. So it's interesting that you're one of the few people that thinks he won't run, but you have an awfully good reason for why. Yeah. So we'll see. It'll be interesting to watch it from the sidelines instead of in the middle of it, if in fact you do stay on the sidelines. Yes. Yes. I hope, hopefully. <laughs> yes. Well, you've been delightful to talk to. I appreciate you taking the time to share with us about this. And if people haven't read the book yet. I suspect you have generated a lot of interest. The title of the book is I'll Take Your Questions Now, What I Saw at the Trump White House, and it's by Stephanie Grisham. I think people will find it an intriguing and insightful read. It's interesting that you're very candid about it from every angle. You take a hard look at yourself as well as other people in the book, and I think that's what makes it pretty refreshing. You, you can't not. I don't think you can talk about everybody else without looking within and, and deciding, you know, what your role was. So I had a big role. I appreciate your candor and 
I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. This was really fun. It was really nice to e-meet you. All right. Same here. Best to your family. Thank you so much. So long, Stephanie. Bye. Bye.